Hello, 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 and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohegan people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Muncie community. I'm your host, H. Bosch, Jr. And I'm the other host, Sina Bazila Hickey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a report on the Bond Act. Mark Dunley interviews Jessica Otney Mahar. Then Willie Terry takes us to the fossil fuel investments by TD Bank rally that he attended and reported on. Later on, Charles Kimball, retired U.S. Army veteran, joins us for a Triple E's segment. After that, H. Bosch Jr. honors Breast Cancer Awareness Month with an interview with a survivor. And finally, Jose Cruz will join us to talk about how he brings Latin jazz to the capital region. But first, here are the headlines. Rapid headlines at that. The Times Union reports that the vote this November over the town of Bethlehem purchased a proposal to purchase over 300 acres of open space and farmland is now being attacked by the Albany County Farm Bureau and others. Opponents argue that there is not pressure of farmland in town and the land should remain in private ownership. A local residence collected enough signatures to force a permissible referendum. Students at Albany High School for years have made a few wigs in their cosmetology course that are given out for free during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But the Times Union reports that with a brand new salon in the renovated high school, they're hoping to raise enough donations to run the wig program all year and expand to help children as well as adults. The Times Union reports that in public schools across New York, Children with disabilities are frequently confined alone in closet-like time-out rooms, sometimes multiple times a day or for hours at a time. The practice is permitted by state regulations but controversial. The rooms are sometimes abused or the rooms are sometimes abused by educators who improperly seclude children inside to prevent them from leaving. The Daily Gazette reports that Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy will sign the $103 million budget passed by the Schenectady City Council after earlier threatening to veto it. The approved plan does not include a proposed 1% tax decrease that the council debated last week, with property taxes instead remaining flat at the mayor's originally proposed level. The first plan eliminates the mayor's original proposal to raise residents' waste collection fees by $1 per week and also cuts the mayor's proposed increases for water and sewer fees in half, with residents now expected to see a $6.50 increase annually for water fees and the $12.60 booster for sewer fees. The mayor and the council also compromised over the use of federal COVID relief funds and the city's fund balance. And that is it for headlines. This November, voters will be asked whether they approve of a $4.2 billion clean water, clean air, and green jobs environmental bond act. 
1.5 billion would go to the climate change mitigation. 1.1 billion for flooding, 650 million in open space, and 650 million in water quality. Mark Dunlea reports. We're joined by Jessica Atni Mahar, who's with the uh, Nature Conservancy as the New York uh, Policy and, and Strategy Director. And besides voting for you know candidates for various uh, state and federal offices uh, this November, there are various ballot measures that people can vote for. And one of them is the uh, called the Environmental Bond Act. So, um, you know, Jessica, maybe just give a brief introduction to Nature Conservancy. But what is the Environmental Bond Act? Great. Well, thanks, Mark, for having me on the program. And the Nature Conservancy is a global conservation organization that was founded right here in New York. Um, and we're really excited to be a part of a large coalition of more than 300 organizations working in support of the Environmental Bond Act. It's called the Clean Water, Clean Air, Green Jobs Bond Act, and voters across New York State will see it on the back of their ballot as Proposition 1. And this measure is really focused on addressing some of the key issues facing our communities, providing clean water, um, protecting public health, and making sure that we're taking action on climate change to address the impacts of extreme weather in our communities and reduce the pollution that causes climate change. So we're really enthusiastic about this opportunity for New York voters to make sure that they can vote in support of these things. Now, I understand the Environmental Bond Act this time is about, was it $4 billion? Yes, it's a $4.2 billion measure, and it's focused on four key priorities. Um, clean water, open space conservation, and farmland protection, uh, restoration of natural resources and flood risk reduction, and then climate change mitigation, which is focused on reducing air pollution and combating uh, heat waves. So you mentioned open space. What are some of the, the key um, measures that the um, you know funding would fund in terms of open space? Yeah, so this is a familiar one for New Yorkers who remember our last Bond Act, although that was all the way back in 1996. So a lot of New Yorkers don't remember that. Um, but one of the big things that that measure did and that this measure will do again is conserve open space and farmland. Now, during the pandemic at the Nature Conservancy, we saw about a 300 percent increase in people visiting our preserves. Likewise, state parks and even New York City parks and our city parks in upstate New York saw similar increases. And the good news is they haven't gone away. People are still really getting out in nature. They're doing it as a safe way to recreate with their families and friends. They're doing it for exercise. They're doing it to make sure they have a place to go for solace. And so this Bond Act will provide funding to create additional uh, areas, parks, uh, open spaces for public recreation, and also for wildlife habitat. Uh, and likewise, it'll conserve our family farms across New York State, which are really under pressure and need support to make sure that they can stay in farming long into the future. Now, you know, clean water has certainly been an issue in Rincer County, um, you know, with some of the concerns about like who's at falls and actually yes. town of Postonkill now. Um, is there enough money in the Bond Act to, to, to deal with our clean water needs in New York? Or what, well, is, what will be some of the priorities of the Bond Act? 
Yeah, exactly. And, and the Bond Act won't deal with all of our priorities, but what it'll do is position us to leverage a lot of other funding sources that have been created. In particular, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as other state funding that exists. So this Bond Act will infuse hundreds of millions of dollars into upgrades to our wastewater infrastructure, our sewers. Um, a lot of our sewers in New York State need replacing or repairing, um, as well as our stormwater systems. You know, during Hurricane Ida, we saw New Yorkers lose their lives to flooding. And what we're realizing now is we need upgrades to our stormwater systems to make sure that they're able to deal with the amount of rain that is happening in these extreme storms that we're getting. It'll also help replace lead service lines. We still have people drinking out of lead service lines, which is a, pol a pollutant that's toxic to people's health. Uh, we wanna make sure that those get upgraded. And this will also help our farmers and our rural areas by uh, helping reducing soil loss from runoff and improving soil health and restoring buffers between farms and streams. So there's a lot of great uh, funding in here for New York State. And also this is well aligned, as I said, with those federal programs. So this positions New York to leverage that money and draw more of that federal money down into New York State. Yeah, I, I think it was a Hurricane Irene maybe almost a decade ago at this point. But it, that really caused a lot of um, flooding in upstate New York, particularly in rural communities. Yes. You know, will rural communities be, you know, getting a share of the funding for this? Absolutely. And that's another part of the Bond Act is flood risk reduction. You know, we had serious impacts in upstate New York from Irene and Lee, as you said, and we've had big storms since then. And when these storms come, they're blowing out infrastructure. One example is our culverts, which are the pipes that carry water beneath the road where the road meets a stream. And, you know, I had a colleague who was a volunteer firefighter uh, during Hurricane Irene in the Adirondacks. Um, who saw roads blow out, and it was the only way in and out of those towns. It was the only way that people could get uh, from his town to a hospital. So these are real serious issues when they occur, and they can snarl people's daily lives for weeks and months. And so the Bond Act will provide funding to upgrade our transportation infrastructure, like our culverts, our roads, our bridges, to make sure that they can withstand uh, the additional water that's coming with these storms. And it'll also help protect natural areas that act as buffers. So in our coastal areas, both on our ocean coasts and our lake coasts in upstate New York, as well as our river areas, we have a lot that's going on in communities that can be enhanced to protect natural areas like wetlands and uh, stream banks uh, and other areas that hold that water and prevent some of that flooding. So absolutely, this is a measure that will touch down not only in our cities, but in our rural areas as well. So we have about three minutes left. I'm going to try to sneak in two questions. The first mm -hmm. question, as you mentioned, climate. What, what What's the climate part of this? Sure. Well, in addition to dealing with the impacts of climate change like flooding, this will also help New Yorkers who are prone to um, being hurt by uh, heat waves. And we know in particular in our cities that there's an uneven distribution of the urban forests and in areas that are uh, more disadvantaged neighborhoods than others, uh, these communities have higher incidence of people dying from heat waves. So there's a lot of funding to help with 
cooling centers, urban forestry, uh, green roofs, but also clean school buses, $500 million for zero emission school buses, um, hundreds of millions of dollars for building retrofits for energy efficiency and renewable energy siting. So big money in here, not only to deal with urban heat, um, but also to make sure that we're reducing the pollution that causes climate change. So I guess my question is, who the heck would be opposed to this? Is there any <laughs> opposition to this? There is a bit of opposition. Um, you know, there are people who believe the state's already spending too much money. Um, you know, these are projects that we really do need funded and also will position our state incredibly well to leverage federal funding. Um, this is also a bond act that's going to create nearly 100,000 jobs for New Yorkers. It has strong labor standards and it's focused on making sure the investments also touch down uh, in an environmental justice communities. And so, this is something everyone can support. It's something people from all parties can support. And we're hoping on election day this year, New Yorkers flip their ballots and vote on Proposition 1, which is this bond act. Now, is there uh, a time limit as to when as to you know when the money has to be spent by and how do we pay it back? So this is in the state budget. It's a part of the state's financial plan. And so the amount of uh, bonds that they will issue will fit within the state's debt cap, and it'll be paid for out of existing revenue sources. So this is an opportunity for New Yorkers who are already paying into the system to make sure a portion of what they pay annually already, not, no new tax, but what they're paying into the system is dedicated to clean water and conservation and climate action. Um, and so the pace of the spending will fit within the state's existing debt cap. So if people wanted to get any additional background information or the resources for that? Yeah, there are. Uh, they can head right online to voteyescleanwaterandjobs.com to learn more about the measure. Um, and if they want reminders to vote, um, they can take the pledge to vote and get those reminders uh, when early voting begins and then again on election day itself. Nature Conservancy have a website? We are online at nature.org slash ny. So we've been talking with uh, Jessica Atni Mahar, uh, Nature Conservancy, New York Policy and Strategy Director, Environmental Bond Act, this November and the election. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. To find that Bond Act on your ballot, you can flip it over for the New York listeners. And we also have an earlier interview on the Bond Act from... Um, scenic Hudson. You can find that on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Okay, great. On Tuesday, October 14th, 2022, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended a protest rally against fossil fuel investments by TD Bank. Chatham Rivers and Mountains Green Faith Circle organized a protest with faith leaders throughout the capital region. The rally occurred in Academy Park in Albany across from TD Jakes. TD Bank. Listen to me, TD Jakes. <laughs> Pray for me, TD Jakes. TD Bank. <laughs> yeah, this is Willie Terry, your Roman labor correspondent for the Hustle Mohawk Network. Down here in Albany in front of the uh, Capitol where they're having protest rally against TD Bank for uh, supporting fossil fuel companies. They just had a protest where they delivered a petition to TD Bank, urged them to stop uh, funding fossil fuel companies. And there was a lot of entertainment. 
culture entertainments here. The bagpipe plan that started the march. And uh, I'm going to talk to the person who uh, was the bagpipe player. And I have as my guest, his name is... Andrew. Andrew Forbes. Andrew Forbes. How you doing, Andrew? I'm good, thank you. How are you? So, Andrew, just tell me a little bit about how you got involved in this. Well, I've been playing uh, pipes for protests, and particularly climate protests, for decades. And uh, my friend Irene Woodard, who's part of the Green Faith Climate Group, uh, invited me to be a part of this one. And um, in any... A situation like this, bringing bagpipes adds a lot of energy, a lot of direction, a lot of spiritual power to the gathering and the intention and the the collective consciousness of the group. So what was your role today? Well, today I, I led the procession and the parade from one park to the bank to the other park and uh, uh, used the bagpipes as a kind of gathering tool to um, uh, make our presence known. So how long you've been uh, playing the bagpipe? I mean, start of a kid? Or? 30 years. 30 years? 30 years. And it, was it in your family? Or? It was not, no. Oh, it's something that you just picked up? It, it picked me. <laughs> right. <laughs> And, and is this the first time I ever heard, you know, the bagpipe playing for the protest, you know, and leading the, well, they do lead parades, but this is you did a protest. Okay, so tell me, what do you think of this issue? The issue of fossil fuel, you know, funding by TV bank. Oh, well, geez. I mean, what can you expect from a bunch of bankers but to finance evil? You know, it's just the same old story that's always been happening. So... Um, you know, it's no surprise to me, uh, the, the, the power of money itself just drives these powerful corporations to consume every natural living thing there is, and they will not stop until everything is gone. And then they'll figure out a way to sell that. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's just really like, uh, a tip of an iceberg that goes very, very deep. Now, when they delivered the petition, did they go inside or did they just... I believe they went inside and they were received. And the manager of the bank, the, man, the branch manager, accepted the letter and said she would deliver it herself. I, I believe that's what she said, yeah. And uh, I forgot to ask you, are you from the uh, Albany area? I live in Rosendale, which is near New Paltz and Kingston. But uh, I lived in New York City for about a decade before I moved up to the Hudson Valley. Mm-hmm. Okay. So are there other uh, events coming up that you will be at? That I cannot say. But if I'm there, you'll hear me. Let's say someone wants to get in touch with you. You can always check out my website at thepiperforbes.com. And uh, you can also find me on Facebook as Andrew Forbes, the bagpiper. And then you can find me on Instagram as Sky Lake Piper. I guess I'm going to know you as Andrew the protest pipe. Yeah. (laughs) All right, I want to thank you for those words. Okay, Andrew? Thank you.
thanks for having me on the show. No problem. And I have as my guest uh, here at the uh, Climax protest against TD Bank, and her name is Sarah Stockwell-Arthen. Uh, how you doing, Sarah? I'm good. All right. And Sarah, tell me something about your group and your organization. Well, I'm not here officially representing Earth Spirit, but I am a clergy of Earth Spirit, which is an indigenous, following indigenous traditions of Europe, and it's uh, um, also known as uh, Earth Center Spirituality. And there are many practitioners um, from around this region, and we're all here as children of the earth who we hold the earth as sacred, and we hold all beings as being important and animated, and human beings not as being above any other being. And they presented a petition at, to TD Bank. So what are your thoughts on the, the, the petition being presented at TD Bank? you think anything will happen? You know, you, I believe in uh, shaming for a good cause. So here we are shaming for a good cause. And, um, you know, when you hear the number of hundreds of billions of dollars that have put it, been put into, um, you know, uh, infrastructure that is totally anti, against um, any kind of climate healing. In fact, it is a, it's in, in favor of and in the direction of climate disaster. So TD Bank has a lot to answer for, as do all of the other large financial institutions in this country and in the world. Well, I know they have about 20 or more organizations here today. Uh, do you think that this movement is growing, you know, in terms of uh, the movement against uh, fossil fuel being used? I think it is because, uh, frankly, I think people are getting scared on, on all over. Like people, even people who are very comfortable and feel have felt very safe up until now are looking around and seeing what's happening all over the world and in our neighborhoods. And, you know, so it's a privilege to feel safe. And I feel think the people are starting to feel not safe. And so, unfortunately, sometimes it takes that to activate people. So I think that people are paying attention and getting more like, what do we do? Right. So that gets them moving. So why do you think uh, y'all they y'all had the protest here between the Capitol and TD Bank? Why was well, that's where you you know that's where people are paying attention you know at the Capitol and at the bank that is right across the street from the Capitol. So that's um, that's a way of getting some attention and to gather people um, to to keep it going. And this organization is basically just getting rolling. So the idea is for more and more people and more and more organizations of faith or uh, um, spirituality, which would be my definition, in to, um, to get involved. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I have as my guest, uh, Dee Duckworth. Dee Duckworth. Duckworth. And how you doing, Dee? I'm going pretty good. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. Right. <laughs> so detail, give me your thoughts on the, uh, on the uh, protest today and the petition being delivered to TV Bank. Well, I really love it that a whole group of faith leaders, all in their, you know, faith identification clothing, went and actually delivered the letter. I think that has impact, and I think that it's so important for faith leaders all around to, to come together and to do that. It's, it really is a moral imperative. And I think you got a sign here that says, Wall Street Funding Foster People. Our house is on fire. Tell me something about the sign. Well, it, I mean, it's the same thing as with TD Bank. I mean, it's about our culture, which is make profits any way you can, and don't worry about the people because somehow or another it'll get taken care of down the line. 
and and it's it's not that way. You can't do that anymore. You cannot wait. You know. But just tell me just a just a little bit about the the organization you said. Oh. Where they located? Oh well, they're located really sort of online, but there's one person that sort of does all the the um, the uh, internet stuff. And then we have a website, and it's a wonderful, in, the Green Faith is an international uh, organization of faith leaders. It's amazing that people from Africa, Australia, you know, Europe, South America, the Vatican, you know, this all. It's international issue. Totally, totally international. It is an international issue, exactly. And so that's what's so wonderful about it. And it just strikes me as where I need to be right now. That's how it feels. Right. Now, what's the website? What's the what? The website. Oh, oh the, the website. Oh, it's uh, rivers-mountains-greenfaith.org. Mm -hmm. right. Next thing. How, how long have you been involved in this? Very, very short. Movement. Well, in, well, in the movement a long time, but in Green Faith, um, really just less than a month. Um, and so I'm happy to be able to be part of an organization, you know, that uh, that's doing that. Now you, you in the capital area? Uh, I live in um, Columbia County, Columbia County, East Chatham, and we're all, you know, the Green Faith mostly is in Columbia County, so kind of thing. So what's been the reception of people? You know, that's a good question. I personally mostly live around people unfortunately that are like me so you know that's what I get I get I get people that are you know wanting to do this kind of thing so I'm not sure that um, I, th I think there's a lot of places where it's not being picked up at all I think that's why we have this demonstration you know so. okay I don't want to hold you no thank you very much what's your name Willie Willie nice and, and, to meet you Willie. nice to meet you thank you thank you okay um, thank you, Mr. Terry. That was a great, another great in interview and segment. Um, our next guest is originally from Albany, New York, retired from the United States Army after serving 25 impressive years of service, licensed insurance and investment agent with a focus in financial education, retirement, education, and long-term investing strategies. Licensing, how about this, catches four states for life insurance and 10 states for securities and investing. His name is Charles Kimball. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Mr. Bosch. Thanks for having me on here. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Uh, we got a lot to uh, unpack, so I'm going to dig right in. Um, what made you uh, transition into financial services? Uh, the financial services industry. So, uh, you know, like a lot of people, COVID impacted our family uh, very hard at the very beginning. Um, my wife is a licensed massage therapist and she lost all of her business in the state of New Mexico because she wasn't doing medical massage. And we had to find a way to make up that income. So she she actually stepped into the into the realm of financial services first and I followed her in. And then, you know, once we sat down and we looked at our our finances and where we were going to be at retirement and realized we were woefully unprepared for retirement, started looking at the way it impacts society and how most people will not be able to retire. Um, it, it touched me, right? Because growing up in Albany, we had a lot of family members who, who won't be able to retire, right? Because they didn't have the financial education that I'm able to give now. Um, and then, you know, researching how 
the the current status of the black community and how how bad our financial education is, especially in inner, the inner city school system. Absolutely. It just it really, really like lit a fire under me to help reach out into these uh, these other communities and in the, in the black community and start getting that education out. Great, great. So um, what are some of the financial concepts you teach families? Because that's where you really got to focus is the family finances. So we do, we treat each family differently. Um, some of the things that we teach, we teach uh, what's called debt stacking, which is basically, you know, if you've got 10 or 12 different debts out there between credit cards, vehicles, home loans, uh, any consumer loans, we look at the ones that have the highest interest rate first, we knock those out, we take the payment that would have been paid for those, stack it on top of your next highest interest rate and put that double payment in there and pay them down. Okay. We were able to pay down $70,000 in debt ourselves uh, in about a year and a half, two years doing it that way. Like we would have paid 70,000. We end up saving ourselves like $30,000 in interest, not doing it that way. Wow. That's really impressive. What are some of the ways you're helping families build? And I love this generational wealth, because that's so important, especially in our communities. So generational wealth um, is because a lot of people don't understand what generational wealth is. Generational wealth is when you yourself hand $100,000, $400,000, $800,000 down to your children, and they are able to create it, build it bigger, and hand a few million dollars down to theirs, and it just keeps getting bigger, right? Um, the Rothschilds are an excellent uh, example of that. So one of, a few of the ways that we do that is we go in, um, almost every employer now has a 401k option, so we explain the importance of 401ks, how they help you with your tax impact, as well as being able to help you retire. We build Roth IRAs. We do traditional IRAs. We have a number of different custodial accounts for children mm -hmm. to include minor Roth IRAs. Um, and then making sure that families in the short term have the proper life insurance and the uh, products in place so that if something does happen, they can leave $600,000, $750,000 to their children, to their dependents, to their beneficiaries, so that that $700,000 can then grow to a few million. Wow. So um, what are some of the major hurdles that stop people from investing? I know what my hurdles were at first. So what are some of the major hurdles? I'd say the number some one examples. Yeah, I have a few, actually. Um, so I'd say the number one biggest uh, biggest uh, hurdle is fear. Right, Most people don't understand the stock market. And they're, the biggest understanding comes from television and movies. And you see guys losing their shirts and throwing tickets up in the air and running off. They don't understand the difference between investing and trading, right? So we teach families how to understand the difference between investing and trading. Um, a lot of people don't understand the difference between loss of value and loss of money. Okay. Right? So if you buy a stock at $100 a share and it drops to $70 a share, a lot of people think they lost $30, mm -hmm. but they didn't. They lost $30 or the value, but they haven't lost any money unless they, they sell the share, the stock, right? Okay. And the best way I can explain that to people is if you buy a car today and say it's worth $30,000 and you drive it off the lot, you wait a year, the value of that car has gone down to $20,000, but you haven't lost $10,000, right? You still own the vehicle. You The value went down. So if you were to sell it, then you would lose $10,000. But as long as you keep the vehicle, you don't lose the money. Does that wow. make sense? Yes, it does. And 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 um, I want I want to get through all these other questions. So then, um, what are some of the financial hurdles um, our community our community is struggling with? So because we always have I, a whole different set of issues. We do. 
So I looked into a lot of uh, a lot of the facts behind, you know, the way the black uh, community is impacted. I'm a member of what's called the African-American Leadership Council mm-hmm. within the America company. Um, and we all get together and we, we discuss these things. One of the biggest ones is the black community accounts for a trillion dollars worth of income into the into the economy every year. A trillion dollars within the black community in the U.S. Mm. We own more Mercedes than the average white community does, than the, than the white community does, right? Mm-hmm. The black community owns more Mercedes. However, comma, we make about $30,000 less a year. Um, <laughs> but look good. But we look good. <laughs> we look good doing it, right? You can't tell uh-huh. us we, we're not looking good, especially on Sunday going to church. <laughs> the biggest fear or the biggest thing that scares me about the, uh, the financial struggles of the black community is the fact that by, if we stay on the track we're on right now, by 2053, the wealth of the black community will be zero. We will have the same level of wealth that we had post-slavery. Wow, we that is that's only really, 30 years from now. That is eye-opening and jaw-dropping. Wow. So uh, which leads me to my next question. Man, and I'm feeling, aren't you feeling extremely educated here? Um, what are some ways that you reach out to the communities to provide this education and service? So a lot of things that uh, that we do is one, we'll go into small businesses. I sit down with small business owners. I help them um, create 401ks or, or other retirement plans for their team. If they don't already have one in place, help them create them for them, um, take their money, move it into tax deferred or tax protected uh, places so that they're not paying as much taxes each year so they can have a bigger profit, reinvest it into their company, make their company bigger. Okay. Uh, we go to community centers. We set up large events with within the community. We go through debt stacking, the rule of 72. Uh, we show families how money works and how the money can work better for them. And then we go to churches. We go to communities or we go into the community and we we have we do the same thing. We sit down with uh, the congregation. We explain to them where their money's at, where their money's going. Uh-huh. And we help them get a plan in place to save that money. The average person spends five hundred dollars a month on uh entertainment expenses right and then says they don't have the money to invest when realistically you could spend 250 a month on entertainment and spend 250 a month on your investments and have a million dollars at retirement wow so so and 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 i want to uh move into the next question but i totally agree with that because you always hear people say well i can't afford to do this and the first thing i say to say to them is how can you afford not to do this so real quick um, what does a typical session cost? And then tell people how they can reach you. Absolutely. So we do what's called a financial needs analysis for every family. Um, that financial needs analysis develops your financial independence number, which is the number you need to retire. Mm-hmm. It also shows you how much money you need in life insurance between now and retirement age to get to that and still have your income protected. Right. That is absolutely free. Okay. That is a a complimentary service. We sit down with the family. If you already have a life insurance policy, we'll dig through your life insurance policy and explain it to you in simple terms that the average person can understand because they're written in legal speak. Okay. So give us some hashtags, information on how people can get a hold to you. And then I just want to end by saying some things. So the fastest way to get a hold of me is Facebook. You can Google or you can search me on Facebook at Charles A. Kimball Jr. Um, or you can go to my website at primerica.com slash C. Kimball Jr. Okay. Now, I want to say to you, I am so proud. I am proud beyond words. Uh, please, um, I would get all kinds of flack if I didn't let you give a shout out to mom and dad because they have raised one 
great, great son. Definitely want to give a shout out to my mom and dad. They are the reason that I am who I am today. They've stood up for me. They have been proud of me. They have backed me in every one of my sometimes crazy decisions, like the 25 years in the army. Um, but they've always had my back. They've always, you know, stood, stood up for me and made sure that even when others didn't believe in me, they always told me that I could do it and I could be great. And Absolutely. I'm just trying to prove them right. And apples do not fall far from the tree. And I want to end by saying this. A lot of people don't know you were in the Pentagon the day it got hit. 911. You want to speak to that real, real quick? Um, that was just a, a, a very traumatic day. Um, there was a lot going on. It was, it's, you know, I, I don't do the, the, uh, the nine 11 remembrances often. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it was, it was very, I still haven't been to world trade center, uh, either. And I was just in New York two weeks ago. <laughs> wow. Well, I want to say, um, thank you for your service to the country. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you will continue to do. God bless you and may heaven continue to smile upon you. And you know, without saying, I am so, so proud of you. And again, Mom and dad have raised a fantastic son. We appreciate you coming on, being part of the Triple E's, education, empowerment, entrepreneurship. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Thank appreciate you so much. Really great information. We'll have to have him back on. Absolutely. We're going to have him as a recurring guest that or, would be great. or contributor. Okay? I would, so I would absolutely love it. All right. And I love all those impressive uh, awards in the backdrop. Isn't that <laughs> something? <laughs> I try Thank to be the so best. Much. Thank you. We appreciate you. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Okay. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm H. Bosch Jr. Um, if you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, W-O-O-C-L-P, 105.3 FM, Troy, New York, W-O-O-G-L-P, 92.7 FM, Troy, and W-O-O-S-L-P, 98.9 FM Schenectady and W-O-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at themediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Thank you, Bosch. And we have another piece from you, Marsha Chandler. This is, uh, yeah, Marsha Chandler, FM I'm, in my mind, is German, evangelist. Oh, well, go right ahead. Evan, I'm versatile. Evangelist, founder of United States Women's Ministries since 1998, counselor and mentor to women in recovery, worked in the New York State Legislature for over 20 years, and a breast cancer survivor. All right. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. In the spirit of bringing acknowledgement and awareness to breast cancers, a month. Today's guest on the show, Triple E's Education, Empowerment, Entrepreneurship, is Sister Marsha Chandler. Sister Chandler is both a is a breast cancer survivor. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Sister Marsha. Sister Marsha is evangelist and founder of, and CEO of United Sisters and Women's Ministry since 1998 and a proud grandmother. Yes. <laughs> so thank you so much, Sister Marsha, for taking time. Thank you for having uh, me. <laughs> yeah, busy schedule. We appreciate it. So um, once again, I'm so glad to say breast cancer survivor instead of victim, and we want to talk a little bit about that in your journey. Okay. Okay? When were you diagnosed? I was actually diagnosed in uh, 2017. Yeah, 2017. I had 
going to the uh, doctor for, you know, for my regular mammogram, and I stayed on top of that. But when I went in 2017, uh, he said, well, wow, we see something. I'm like, yeah, okay. But it didn't really bother me because I didn't feel like I was predisposed to it because my mother didn't have it, my grandmother, none of the women in my family uh, had it. So okay. I, I really wasn't scared, you know. <laughs> So what was your initial response when you were diagnosed and they said, hey, we found something and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we believe you have breast cancer? Well, initially, of course, it takes you, it kind of takes you, you know, back a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. But um, I I said, well, hmm, I don't know if I really believed it, but I I did. Thank God I did go back. You know, and they and they had to do a biopsy, and they did, you know, they did find something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After the biopsy, and they said, well, now, you know, that wait and see period to see whether or not, you know, it's benign, you know, mm-hmm. uh, were you scared? Were your emotions all over the place? You know, speak to that a little bit. Okay. I, um, I don't know if I was really scared, but I was a little bit concerned because, ironically, during that time, there was a couple of other women in my church that had it uh, uh had been diagnosed one passed away uh Gloria Turner and then my cousin uh, uh which one was Teresa uh Harris she had it so it was just you know it made me a little bit concerned i'm like what is going on here mm-hmm. uh so i told the doctor he told me that i would more than likely have to do either chemotherapy or radiation. How did your family respond, your kids, your family? Well, you know, I'm going to tell you, at first, I really kind of held back and didn't really say anything. I guess I wanted to have something really concrete, and it was already concrete. But I have sons. I have five sons. Right. And, um... I just kind of took my time telling them, like, one by one. And, of course, with boys, they they just got kind of quiet. You know, they didn't know. Uh, I think because my, my kids think that, oh, Mom, she, she's all right. She doesn't need anything, that kind of thing. And for me to tell them that I had received a diagnosis of breast cancer, that was like, just really blew them away. And they wouldn't even talk to me about it. You know, yeah. <laughs> wow. But, so then, um, yeah, let me yeah. Ask, once you were diagnosed, what type of treat? what stage did they catch it in, one? And two, what treatment did you seek? Was it, you know, aggressive or, yeah, speak, you know, mm-hmm. share that with Okay. Me. I, when they, when they caught it, it was almost, I think almost two points or whatever it is, stage two. And um, he said that the doctor said that I would either have to do chemo and or radiation. But I honestly, I just really began to pray. And I said, and, and I had a couple of prayer warriors. And I said, I don't, I just pray that all I have to do is the radiation. So in the meantime, they had to send my uh, my specimen out to California, and they do a really intense intense 
look at at the um, at the tissue rather, mm-hmm. and it took about mm, I don't know, it took about ten days I think for it to come back. Now during that time, I began to get a little antsy, a little nervous about that. But thank God, when it finally came back, I think I was like one or two points from having to do chemotherapy, and I wound up doing the radiation, 33 rounds of radiation, which was such a blessing. Yeah, that was a blessing, I'm telling you. So a couple more questions before we close out. Okay, did you have any side effects? Effects to the radiation? No, not really. No. You know, you get a little tired with the with the radiation, but right. the radiation it took longer to get undressed than it did to to actually do the actual radiation. Okay. You know, yeah, it took that. I think the radiation each treatment was maybe ten, fifteen minutes, something like and, that. And 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 how many times a week or or? or you know. I went every I went every day. I got thirty three rounds, so I went just about a month. Wow, yeah. that is mm-hmm. well. I want to ask you this, and uh, this question leads into, um, I am so glad I can say you are a proud survivor and not victim. So my next question is, um, how did your lifestyle change? Well, actually, you know, it didn't because I, um, I I kept going to work, and I still kept going to church, and uh, I just, kept doing what I was doing because I um I didn't I wasn't feeling any kind of bad way. Mhm. That so yeah, I I kind of just kept doing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. How can people Sister Marsha get involved with your organization? Tell us how they can reach you because you know, you have this wonderful organization that's been around since 1998. Talk to me a little bit about it. Tell people how they can get involved with the organization Mm -hmm. because you are such a powerful woman of God, and I so thank you for coming on and sharing your inspirational Mm -hmm. story with us. So Mm -hmm. how do they get involved? I appreciate you having me. Right now, I'm um, getting, because I've been kind of like on a download for a little bit because I had Mm -hmm. other issues, health issues, but I'm getting ready now to start with the United Sisters Women's Ministries again. And I'm, I was on the radio for on WJZ for a few years with um, called Life in the Word, and okay. I was on there every every week. And now I'm getting ready to start a support group down here in, in where I live. I actually live in South Moore Towers, which is senior housing. Okay. And I'm looking to start next week, the 24th, a support group begin to bring the women back together oh, again because I work with women that were in recovery, women that were had HIV and AIDS, and every year at Christmas time, I was for about seven years, I was doing a, um, it was a holiday event, holiday outreach, where I talked to the women, invited women from the women's shelter to uh, to the church, and I would do brunch and give them all gifts and all that kind of So I'm getting ready, you know, there's, I'm going to have people like just be on the lookout Great. for United Sisters Christian Women's uh, Ministries. So okay. we should be on up and out and getting ready to do again because I find that women are a lot of times they don't really get the support. And especially like women coming home from prison, they have babies to come to deal with. Where right. men, they come home and 
they can go and just live with somebody, but a lot I, of the I, women, I, I so, you know what I, I mean? So, right. I so much agree with you that yeah, there's so many programs yeah. for men and not many for women. But um, exactly. we're going to have to close out. And uh, what I want to say, well, first of all, I want to say a shout out to your sister, Tony, who we went to high school together. Okay. Right? Okay. So I got to say hi to Tony and make sure she yeah. And um, <laughs> thank you. God bless you. May oh, heaven continue you. to smile upon you and everything you do. You are thank a true you. agent of change and a blessing to so many. Wow. All right. Thank you so much. Remember Remember this, dance like there's no one watching, sing like there's no one listening, love like you've never been hurt, and you better live like it's heaven on earth. Until next time, don't hear about making a difference. You need to be about making a difference. This is Miss Inez's Bosch's baby boy and your overcoming <laughs> adversity specialist, H. Bosch Jr., doing what I'm made to believe. God bless you, Sister Marsha. God bless. God bless. And that was Evangelist Marsha Chandler, speaker, teacher, and um, breast cancer survivor, not victim. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your remarkable journey and uh, how, your words of inspiration. Since then, um, her sister Tony has passed away. So I want to say rest in peace, Tony. Gone, but never, never forgotten. And to close out the show, we are now joined by Jose Cruz, president of Jazz Latino Inc. And he's been bringing jazz, Latin jazz, to the Capital Region as a performer, producer, and event sponsor. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so for those who don't know you, could we begin by some of your background in music and your work with Jazz Latino Inc.? Yeah. Um, I am a um, self-taught musician, percussionist, um, been playing uh, for many, many years, uh, began to play professionally in 2000. Um, and um, in 2006, I established Just Latino as a nonprofit organization to bring Latin jazz concerts to the capital region. And since 2019, I've been producing um, records um, in that genre. Um, I have two productions so far. So what is the scene for Latin jazz in the Capital Region like? Well, um, before Jazz Latino, uh, there was not much. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I decided to establish Jazz Latino. It was basically out of a sense of frustration with the lack of musical diversity in the area, um, the dearth of um, uh, Latin jazz offerings. Uh, and uh, since Jazz Latino was established in 2007, uh, we've been able to do an annual concert series every spring, bringing between uh, one and three concerts per season. Um, uh, and um, in fact, in 2020, we had a terrific show coming up with Bill O'Connell and his um, Afro-Caribbean jazz uh, quintet, and um, Aurora Mendez, who's a violinist, who was going to do a show entitled Sounds of the Americas, and then COVID hit. Um, uh, we had to post postpone that, um, uh, and um, we, ho we are ho hoping to resume the series in uh, 2024. And with Bill O'Connell, he's coming up, the uh, quartet, 
is coming up okay. on Friday the 28th. Tomorrow. Yes. So that has been rescheduled. Can we tell uh, there are four performers? And um, what should we know about that performance? Right. Um, well, um, that's going to happen tomorrow, um, October 28th at 8 o'clock in the Memorial Chapel at Union College in Schenectady. It's, um, this is a straight-ahead concert. It's not a Latin jazz concert, um, but it's also part of um, Jazz Latino's purview because the, the purpose of the organization is to promote not just Latin jazz, but jazz as well. And so with the concert tomorrow, we inaugurate a new series called Straight Ahead Now. Um, and it's uh, an occasional collaborative series um, where Jazz Latino partners with colleges, universities, community-based organizations, and cultural groups. Um, and um, the concert tomorrow with Bill O'Connell is sort of the maiden um, offering of that series. Um, uh, Bill O'Connell is... Uh, jazz player who has also been very prominent in the Latin jazz scene, uh, playing for many years with Dave Valentin, the, Dave, the flutist. Um, and um, tomorrow he's, will, he's going to be joined by Craig Handy on saxophone, Lincoln Goins on bass, and Robbie Amin on drums. And um, all of these musicians are leaders um, on their own right. And so it's going to be basically an all-star performance uh, of uh, mostly straight ahead jazz with some um, with a Latin tinge, actually. So what are some typical characteristics of the sounds of Latin jazz? Well, um, Andy Gonzalez, um, a bass player, a Puerto Rican bass player from the Bronx, who was co-leader with his brother Jerry Gonzalez uh, of the Fort Apache band. Uh, once defined Latin jazz as improvisation on the Cuban clave. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's a genre that combines the melodic and harmonic structures of jazz with the polyrhythmic patterns of Afro-Caribbean music. And that's, in a nutshell, what Latin jazz is about. There's quite an extensive history of Latin jazz and also the fusions. And I, I know it had spread to Pan-Africa, um, like the Congo. I think there's uh, Franco was, was greatly influenced by um, Latin jazz. So can you talk about some of the history? Yeah, well, um, uh, the root is Africa, obviously, uh, because of the, uh, the percussive and rhythmic elements um, Cuba plays a big role, um, eh, and um, a Cuban rhythms, um, musical patterns, basically travel to the United States uh, th through New Orleans, um, eh, and um, from there, um, it basically develops um, eh, and spreads uh, eh, throughout the United States, um, it becomes, it's a genre that becomes really popular in the 60s and 70s. Um, there's a lot of, there was a lot of um, exchange, musical exchanges. There were a lot of musical exchanges between African-American musicians and Puerto Rican and Cuban musicians in New York City right. during the 1950s. Um, uh, and that New York scene um, essentially spreads uh, to Chicago, to Philadelphia, to Los Angeles, San Francisco, 
and from there to the rest of the world. And so, so today, Latin jazz is a worldwide, it's a global phenomenon. You have, you know, um, uh, Latin jazz bands all over Europe, um, uh, the, the Netherlands, um, uh, China, oh, Japan. Yeah. Everywhere. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. So um, I'd like to chime in and ask uh, one question, sir. First of all, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest on the show. Who were some of your influences growing up? Uh, well, I actually, <laughs> I actually was uh, was shaped. My musical tastes were shaped mostly by um, rock and roll during the 1960s. Mm. Uh, Latin music was basically in the background in my family, mm -hmm. uh, but during the 60s, then um, I was exposed uh, to um, the uh, sounds of the Fania record company. Uh, Willie Colon, Larry Harlow, Johnny Pacheco. Um, and then from there, um, the first time I heard um, Latin jazz was by an Argentinian sax player, Gato Barbieri, who came to play at the University of Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. uh, and from there, you know, it, it took off that um, predilection. Okay. What a great sound, too. What a great sound. What are your main instruments? We have to wrap up, but uh, what are yeah. your main instruments, Jose? Well, the, the, the instrument I play are, you know, uh, hand percussion instruments, um, congas, um, bongos, um, but also a little bit of timbales. Um, my preferred instrument is uh, the bongo, which is uh, a, an instrument that originates in Cuba, um, was created in Cuba in the 1920s. Um, a, and um, uh, it's it's a staple more of you know Caribbean music than Latin jazz, um, but you can hear it, for example, in the music of Cal Jader um, uh, and and others. But Cal Jader, it's a it's a prominent uh, practitioner uh, because he was you know fundamentally a percussionist before he became a vibraphonist. Although the vibraphone is also a percussive instrument, but you know, it, it has, you know, um, a more melodic capabilities than, uh, let's say, a drum set or... Uh, we are out of time. But Jose Cruz, it's been so fantastic to have you on. And jazzlatino.org is your website. Yes. That's where they can find more information about some of the um, records you produce and the upcoming event, correct? Yeah. Correct. And we hope to have you back on our show very soon. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Take care. Great, 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 great interview. Um, before I close out, I want to say that um, I had the opportunity uh, yesterday. I was um, in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I had the opportunity to meet these two beautiful uh, women. And in the spirit of cancer survivor, I told them I would give them a shout out. Uh, Bonnie Lee, who is a cancer survivor, and her friend Dale of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. You guys treated me like royalty, and I wish nothing but success to you. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey, and shout out to our volunteer producers, H. Bosch Jr., of course, Willie Terry, Mark Dunley, and we just want to thank, this show could not be done without all of our volunteers. So thanks for listening and until next time.